Amen. We have a lot from the Amazing Grace class in this service. You are a blessing to us, and we are so glad that you're here. God bless each one of you. Amen. Speaking of blessing, we have, um, we have more than 100 people, about 125 people out of our church this morning. They are uh, on mission trips in three different places. Our middle schoolers are in Austin, and this morning they are ministering at a church there in Austin, singing their musical a powerful musical. I hope you were able to see it uh, just a few weeks ago. And Clay Mobley, our, um, our worship leader, associate music lead, uh, director here, uh, he's with them. And then our high schoolers are up in the uh, Branson area, Branson, Springfield, Missouri. They're at a church this morning, Willard, Missouri, and they're sharing their musical uh, right now, in fact. And uh, so uh, Mark, our music minister, is up there with them. And so since they're both gone, I guess Dennis is third team. I, I, I don't know, but, <laughs> but he's uh, first in our hearts, though. So speaking of blessed, we're blessed to have him. Very talented. So thank you, Dennis, for leading out today. He is, of course, our executive pastor, but also can lead out in the 845 service. He conducted the choir. And uh, this service, of course, leads in, in, uh, in contemporary blend, uh, as well as playing the harmonica and everything. So... We're blessed to have Dennis here as well. We have a third team that's out also. They're in Tanzania. And uh, members of our church are camping out along the river there. And they're going each day into villages to, um, to share the gospel with people, the Zoromo people, mostly Muslim, 98% Muslim, but they've never heard the gospel of Jesus. And so we literally have people who are going from our church to those who have heard it before, in Missouri and Austin, and then those who have never heard it before, they're in Tanzania. Something about, um, it kind of seems unfair that some people are, um, they get to hear the gospel two and three and four and five times, and some haven't heard it at all. And so, um, but I'm thankful for those who will go from our church and, uh, and be a part. So pray for those that are out, quite a few today, about 125 that are gone uh, with our students as well as our sponsors. Well, one of them was a, a fiery preacher from England. And the other one was a, was a printer from Philadelphia. And they forged an unusual friendship. George Whitfield was a fiery, passionate, emotional, revival, great awakening preacher. And everybody loved him. And Benjamin Franklin was a hard-working print shop owner in Philadelphia, and they became good friends. They first met in Philadelphia in November of 1739, whenever George Whitfield went into the print shop to have some brochures printed about the revival. Well, Ben Franklin was not interested in going to a revival. He, uh, he was raised as a Puritan, and he rejected his Puritan roots didn't believe much about anything spiritual at all and did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Whitfield, on the other hand, was a theatrical, fiery, dynamic preacher. And huge crowds would come in to hear him preach and they would be spellbound and mesmerized as he preached the gospel. In fact, it's funny because Actors would come out and watch Whitfield preach to get tips on acting. One actor of the day said, quote, 
you could bring a, or Whitfield could bring a tear to your eye just by the way he said Mesopotamia. There was another actor of the day, David Garrick, who was a a very famous Shakespearean actor of the day. And he said, quote, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like George Whitfield. It's powerful. And so Whitfield and Ben Franklin had this friendship, and Whitfield talked very often to Ben Franklin about his salvation. And he never would be saved. In his autobiography, Ben Franklin wrote, wrote, quote, George prayed constantly for my conversion. He spoke to me often about it. And I believe that he thinks he failed because I was never converted. On one occasion, Franklin was leaving the print shop and closing up early. A friend of his walked by and said, Ben, why, why are you closing early? And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to hear Whitfield preach. And the friend said, why? What are you doing? You, you don't believe that. Ben replied, no, but he does. And I want to hear him. There's something captivating and powerful when a preacher preaches with authority. And we've been looking for the last 15 weeks at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he preached with such power. So we've been going through a sermon series, looking at that sermon verse by verse for 15 weeks, started in chapter 5 of Matthew, 5, 6, and 7, and he ended the sermon last Sunday morning talking about the two builders, one life that's built on a rock, and when the storms come, it stands, and the one house that's built on the sand, and when the same storms come, it crashes, and he ended his sermon. And then Matthew records for us the response of the crowd as they listened. So read with me verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, now that Jesus has ended the sermon, I want us to look a little more closely at what Matthew records for us at the reaction of the crowd listening. Number one on your outline, verse 28, the crowds were astonished. The crowds were astonished. So, go back to chapter 5. Jesus began his sermon. The Bible says that he went up on the hillside there. It's the Sea of Galilee, the northwest region. It's sloped hill that goes up to a hilltop up there. So if you get up on the side of the hill, the crowd can get down below and they can hear you well. So Jesus got up on the side of the mountain, sat down, and the Bible said that he called his disciples to him. So he's, he's preaching the sermon to the 12 disciples, not the crowd. 
So he's preaching to the 12, and as he's preaching, there was such power and authority in it that the crowd began to gather in Matthew 5. And whenever he's preaching, the crowd gathers. And as he goes, the crowd keeps gathering. And when it's finished, Matthew tells us the reaction of the crowd. Now, I would have expected he'd tell us the reaction of the disciples. He wasn't talking to the crowd. They were just overhearing what he was telling the disciples. So I would have expected Matthew to say, here's the reaction of the disciples. But he doesn't say that. He gives us the reaction of the crowd. Now, Matthew didn't have to give us a, an account at all. And it would still have been powerful. I mean, Jesus, when he finished the sermon, he closed it to two builders, one on the rock, one on the sand, and the very last thing he said was, the sand, the house that fell when the rains came, and it fell with a great fell, and he used the word megalos with emphasis, and he closed. And Matthew just could have gone right on to chapter 8. But he stopped. And he gave us two verses of what the crowd thought about it. Why? Must have been significant to, to Matthew. Now, there are no parallel accounts of the crowd's response in the other Gospels. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All, they're all different views of the one life, and so they, they overlap a lot of things. Matthew is the only one that recorded what the crowd did. Nobody else did. Why? And whenever Matthew uses the word for crowds, oshlos, he uses it in the plural, which usually crowd is singular. But many times, whenever they want to emphasize something in the Greek language, they'll add a plural to what should be singular. So whenever he said crowds, plural, it meant a bunch of them, and they kept coming. What did they hear? struck a chord. Now, as you begin verse 28, some of your Bibles say this and some of them don't. Mine is the ESV. It does not say it. Verse 28 begins, and when Jesus finished these things, but some of your Bibles adds a phrase right at the very beginning of verse 28 that says, and it came to pass. And it came to pass when Jesus finished these sayings. Now, in the original language, the end it came to pass is in there. In fact, Dr. Constable says that in Jesus' life and ministry, there are six movements. And each movement is very significant in the life of Jesus. And each movement begins with the phrase, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. And so in Matthew's mind, what follows, and it came to pass, is powerfully significant. And the response of the crowd is one of those. So Matthew sees it as a key moment in Jesus' life. This is a response. And he tells us, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. What does the word astonished mean? Well, you'll see it on the screen there. In, in Greek, it's the word pleso. You put the prefix in front of it, ek pleso, and it means to strike with a blow. It means to punch somebody. 
It means to drive away with sudden shock. It was also a cooking term. It meant to pound something and flatten it out. So, why is that word used to describe a sermon? Matthew says when Jesus finished the sermon, the crowd said, we've been touched. Wow. We have, we've been pounded and flattened. It would, it would be our equivalent of saying, I'm blown away. Or, you could have knocked me over. Same equivalent. So he preached for three chapters. The crowd's listening to what he told the disciples, and they walk away going, we're astonished and blown away. A.T. Robertson, a great Greek scholar, says, the best translation is, there was a buzz of astonishment. Amplified Bible says, the crowds were astonished and overwhelmed with bewildered wonder at his teaching. You ever heard a sermon like that? You ever heard a sermon where it's over and you're shaking your head and you're going, I am blown away. You don't hear them here very often, I'll say that. <laughs> what kind of sermon must that have been? That they're bewildered. It's the exact same word used when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple. You remember that story? He, he's in the temple at 12, and his family had come there to, to worship in the uh, annual pilgrimage. They had gone back home. They're journeying, journeying several days to, to Nazareth, and they get a little down the road and realize Jesus isn't there. And so they backtrack to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple teaching the religious leaders at 12. And the Bible says in Luke 2.48 that his parents were ekpleso, punched, blown away at Jesus. So what was it? What was it that Matthew stopped to tell us that was so significant? We'll go to number two on your outline, verse 29. Why were the crowds astonished? Well, Matthew tells us. He doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us. And he does not say that the crowds were astonished because of Jesus' oratory ability. It wasn't that he was so smooth-tongued that you hung on his every word like he did George Whitfield. It wasn't it. He never mentioned Jesus' speaking ability. He doesn't mention Jesus' sincerity. I mean, you hear a preacher that's very sincere in what they're saying. That comes across, and Matthew didn't mention that. I'm sure Jesus came across that way, but he's, it wasn't mentioned. Why was it? It wasn't even the content. I mean, it'd be easy to say, well... Jesus, he, he gave them such rich content, and they were fed, so they flocked to hear him. He doesn't mention the content. In fact, if you look at what Jesus said, the crowd had already heard most of it. He didn't say much new. They had already been told, follow the Ten Commandments. 
Moses told them that in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. They had already heard, don't commit adultery. Heard that in Exodus 20. They had already heard, love your neighbor. Heard that in Leviticus 19, 18. They had, in fact, they had already heard there are two ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to death, and, and you need to choose the one that leads to life. Moses said that in Deuteronomy 30. They have heard all these things. It's not new. Then what was it? Matthew says the reason they were astonished was his authority when he preached the authority he had. Now, the word authority, you'll see it on the screen there, exousia, it literally means the power of ability and choice. It means the liberty to do as you please. It means right and privilege. It means the power to rule. There's something about authority that when someone has it, you know it. And Matthew said, verse 29, for, it, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The word had there is the imperfect tense, so it means to continue. So he was preaching as one to continue to have authority. He preached with authority. He got up, he walked back down the mountain with authority. He started to head to Capernaum with authority. He continued that authority. It didn't leave when he stopped. Kept going. Not as their scribes. You see, the people had heard a lot of sermons from the scribes. They'd, they'd gone to synagogues their whole lives, and rabbis will preach dull and boring and lifeless sermons taken from the, the Gemara and the Mishnah and the Talmud, and, and they, they over and over, and they heard these dull, boring, lifeless sermons on every aspect of Jewish life. And then Jesus comes along and opens his mouth, and they hang on his every word because he had authority. And Jesus was different. It's kind of like he was the author of what he was saying. And it's kind of like not only was he teaching them, but he was the way to accomplish what he taught. I can't do that. I, I can stand on Sunday morning and I can tell you the way, but I can't be your way. Jesus was. Now, who were the scribes? Well, the word that's used is grammatius. We get our word grammar from it. It means to write. They were experts in Jewish law. They studied the Scriptures. They edited the Scriptures. They, they copied the Scriptures. Didn't have a printing press, so they would copy by hand the Scriptures. And every time, every Sabbath in the synagogue, the scribes would stand, they would take a scroll, and the first thing they did was tell you their lineage. I am Ezra, I am whatever their name would be, and I am of the lineage of Levi, of the lineage of Gershon, of the lineage of Shimei, 
of the lineage of Hebron. And the crowd would go, okay, he's Jewish. It's good. It's authority. And then right after he did that, he would tell you his teachers. He would tell you where he's been to seminary. After that, he would say, I'm teaching from the master Simeon ben Hillel and Shafar ben Gamaliel. And the crowd would go, oh, okay, he studied. He's educated. And they'd listen. They did it every time. Lineage and education. And they'd start. But when Jesus did it, he gave no lineage. And he didn't tell them where he studied. He just opened his mouth. And as he went, they realized his lineage was God. And his authority is himself. Fourteen times in that sermon, fourteen times he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he told them something elevated. Fourteen times. He's the authority. I can't do that. I couldn't tell you this morning, okay, folks, I know that you've read the Bible your whole lives, and I know the Bible says this, but you don't listen to that. You listen to me. <laughs> Why should you do that? But when he did it, it was powerful. Because you see, Jesus' authority was not in a book, it was in himself. And the crowds did not ask, where did he study? They asked, where are you from? What's your origin? Who are you? Now, if you think about it, it's, it's harder to establish authority by what you say than by what you do. It really is. I mean... Because if you teach with authority, people can debate your concepts. But if you act with authority, there, there's no questioning, no debating. That leper's healed, <laughs> and that dead man's raised. He's alive, and that paralytic is walking. Authority is there. But he even established it in what he said, which is harder. You see, if Jesus' authority came from oratory skills, they would have praised his techniques. If his authority had come from content, they would have rushed to the synagogues to hear more. But his authority came from within himself. And all you can do is follow And that's exactly what they did. Go to number three on your outline. What happened next? Matthew 8 tells us. So Jesus finished preaching the sermon, got up, and the Bible tells us that he left and started heading toward Capernaum, not far away, the closest town. 
He was headed to Capernaum, and Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 says, large crowds followed him. So the crowds are listening. They love what he says, and he leaves, and they don't leave and go to the cafeteria. They keep following, and they keep going. And Jesus is leaving, and a leper comes up who's Jewish. Stops. He falls on his face and kneels before Jesus and looks up at him and says, Jesus, if you want to, you could heal me. You didn't get close to leprosy in those days. You still don't, but you didn't get close to leprosy in those days especially. You certainly didn't touch it. And the Bible said Jesus looked down and touched him, and he says, I want to be healed. And the man got up, healed, skin is clean. And Jesus said, okay, go, go show yourself to the priest. Do everything Moses told you to do. That way you can get back in society again. The man was Jewish. And he kept walking toward Capernaum when another man came up. Matthew chapter 8 records it for us. This man's not Jewish, he's a Gentile. And he's a Roman centurion. And he stops Jesus. He said, Jesus, I, I have this servant back at my house. He's, he's deathly ill. He, he's paralyzed can't move, he's getting worse, we don't know what to do, and in Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. You don't have to go to my house, you just say the word, and he'll be healed. You see, Jesus, I'm, I'm a man under authority, but I'm a man who has authority as well. I'm under authority, I'm told what to do, I do it. And I have people under me, whenever I have the authority, that whenever I say go, they go, whenever I say do this, they do that, because I know authority. Hang on, wait a minute. What was that word again? Authority. Jesus, I know authority, and so all I have to do is say a word and it happens, and all you have to do is say a word and it happens. Could you speak the word? Jesus said, I'll go to your house. No, no, no. I'm not worthy to be, not worthy to have you under my roof. Just say it from here. And now Jesus is astonished. And he goes, I have never seen faith like that. Not in Israel, I haven't. Go, your servant's healed. And so the man left as he gets close to the house. Someone comes out running. Guess what? Guess what? Your servant's better. He's up walking. He feels great. What time of day did it happen? About this time. And he remembered that's when Jesus had said it because he had authority. And the man was a Gentile. And he walked a little further and told the disciples, crowd's getting too big. Let's go to the other side of the lake. And they start to go to the other side of the lake. And guess who came up? A scribe came up. Yes, one of those that preached the dull, lifeless sermons. One of those that gave you his lineage and gave you his education. One of those came up and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. He saw in him what he didn't have, authority. 
And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Where I'm going, headed to a cross. Still want to follow? And what Jesus told us after the sermon is significant. He told us whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, either one, you follow and I'll heal you. It doesn't matter who you are. You follow me and my teachings. You will have power and authority. So I was going to Dick's Sporting Goods last week. I was driving by there, actually going to another part of Firewall, but I drove by there. And I looked over at Dick's Sporting Goods, and right there on the front doors is a sign as soon as you walk in. And here's what the sign says. Sports change lives. So I stopped my car, backed it up, took a picture, and said to myself, no, they don't. They don't. They're fun. They don't change your life. You see, I love sports. I've always loved sports. I've always played sports. I always loved sports. Played for years. Still broadcast games, play-by-play on Friday night football on the Internet. I've been doing it for years. I love it. They don't change your life. Years ago, I was offered a position in Tulsa at a Christian school to come and chair the Bible department and teach to be the basketball coach. But sports don't change your life. They do a lot of good things. They inspire confidence. They, they develop skills. They, you work as a team. But they don't change your life. At one time, sports is my God. They were more important to me than anything else. All, down, all during my teenage years, I went to church every Sunday at the First Baptist Church in my hometown, and I sat there in idolatry every single Sunday because what they were talking about on the platform was really second in my life, and sports is first. So I've had sports for my God. I did for a long time. And when I saw this, it struck a chord. Because you see, whenever I was 18 years old and I was in intensive care in the hospital, not expected to live, and, and laboring just for every breath, hard to breathe, fighting for every breath, sports didn't give me one breath. But God did. And so you're going to hear in culture a lot of things are really important. A lot of things change your life. No, they don't. Only one thing does. And you've heard it from this platform for the last 15 Sundays. Powerful words of a man who embodied his teaching. He changes your life. And his words change your life. And that's all. Lord, I thank you today for, for this passage of Matthew telling us the response of the crowd. Lord, we are, we are told that they were astonished, and, and I look at our own lives, and I don't know why we lose that astonishment so easily. 
and then sleep while your word is going forth. How does that happen, Lord? So, God, I pray today that you will bring back our wonder, our astonishment at the authority Christ has and the power of his words. Because, Lord, sometimes we lose that. God, I also pray for those who need to follow Jesus' way for the very first time. They need to be like the crowd and get up and, and follow like chapter 8 begins. So, Lord, give people the courage, balcony and the lower level, to get up today. Come up here and follow you. For those that need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that they'll be willing to repent submit their lives to you and what you did on the cross and the powerful resurrection and they'll give you their lives in jesus name i pray amen